What's up, Banish Crew? Welcome back to another lovely episode. Today, we're going to have like a two-part episode. The first part, I just kind of wanted to revisit the case of Carissa Shell, And the reason for that is today, April 21st, is going to be the nine-year anniversary from the day she went missing. So I figured we would just kind of revisit the case and talk about her. It seems like so long ago we profiled her. She was actually only the second ever case that I had done, and I'm kind of surprised that it went as well as it did. A lot of that has to do with her brother, Chris. So thank you, Chris, for giving me all that information and keeping the lookout for her. Courtney as well. I know she's been searching for Carissa. Basically, her whole family miss her. They keep her alive in thought. They talk about her. Um, there's certain stuff on the internet, different newspapers that did quote-unquote stories about her that I'll get to later. But first, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about Carissa, and then we'll get into the details with the authorities and everything. So, Carissa was born December 11th, 1994. That makes her a Sagittarius, just like me. Hey, what's up? She's 5'6". She has brown eyes. She's Caucasian. She's always been described as having a good relationship with her family. That has never wavered in any of the articles that I've seen about her. I was able to go to her Facebook page and kind of look at it just to get a feel of, you know, what this girl was all about. So, you got to keep in mind, though, she's like, she's young. She's like 15, 16 years old when she goes missing. And a lot of the stuff I found on her Facebook page was, it kind of just reminded me of a girl that just needed some love and she needed some attention. And I don't know, like, I get the, the feeling that she was kind of feeling lost or something. It's just a really fucked up age, 15, 16 years old. And I know she was in foster care, so I'm sure that had to do a number on her mind. Um, other than that, I know she loved her mom very much, and she loved her siblings very much. If you go and look at her Facebook, it's super evident. Now, with Carissa's case... There are so many different stories about what happened to her the last night she was seen. So what I'm going to do is I'll just give you a few versions of the story. And you guys can try to decide what you think happened. Towards the end of it, I'm going to give the family a little warning to maybe sign off. Because I'm just going to get blunt and come out and talk about what I think happened and it might not be something they want to hear but don't worry guys I'll give you a warning so it's April 20th 2011 and she's like super excited because it's 420 and I assume she's gonna go smoke some weed with her friends and just kick back a bit if you look on her Facebook posting um, you can see she's kind of even talking about that so at some point in the night she goes to her sister's house and I know she hangs out there for a while um she calls her brother Chris at one point and she's like hysterically upset 
she's just like crying, sobbing, like ugly crying. It's so bad that Chris can barely understand what she's saying or what she's talking about. What he thinks she may have been saying that night is that she was worried that someone was going to come take her. Now, he's not exactly sure who Carissa thought was going to come take her. He thought she may have said CPS, but he is very, very clear that he's not sure what she said. So, I heard another story that she was also very upset because the guy, the man that she was attracted to and had feelings for, had basically let her know that nothing was going to happen. And, I mean, it couldn't. He was a man. He was 26 years old, and this girl's like 15, 16, going on 40. So, of course, she's heartbroken. And coupled on top of maybe she was drinking, um, you know, it just it made it so I think she was just kind of having a shitty night. So she leaves her sister's house, and at that point she goes to her foster mom's house. Now, once she gets to the foster mom's house, we got a whole list of characters there. Ready for this shit? So, we have the foster mom. We've got two foster brothers. We've got a biological brother. We've got her biological father there. Okay? So, the state she arrives in at that house has been described as so high, so messed up, that her eyes were kind of rolling in the back of her head. And nobody's exactly sure what she had been given. So she, at one point, goes into the bathroom and leaves the lights off and stays in there for 20 minutes. I'm assuming what happened is she went in there and maybe nodded off or something like that. Because the, the way she she's described as acting almost reminds me of like if she had too high of a dose of an opiate maybe GHB was given to her something that's making her kind of lose consciousness and that shit is hella dangerous when you start losing consciousness because of an opiate it's going to depress your central nervous system, you're going to stop breathing, and then you're fucked, unless you have Narcan. That's that reversal stuff. And back in 2011, that stuff was not widely available. Even now, it's not super widely available. I carry it around because some of the patients I see are on pain medications, and I just would rather have it than not. But it's not something back then, even I didn't have it back then. So, she comes out of the bathroom after 20 minutes of being in there in the dark, and I'm told what she does next is super out of character, but she starts to, like, try to kiss her foster brother. And prior to this incident, she had always just, like, not even really liked the guy. So, everyone is just like, what is going on? Why would she be trying to do that? So... Obviously, she's not in her right mind. She's in no condition to be consenting to any type of sexual activity. Um, But I've been told, allegedly, this foster brother had been known 
to give females drugs and get them so high that he could kind of take advantage of that situation. Now, I, I don't have any confirmation on that. Like I said, it's a legend. But if that's true, this guy is a scumbag. And who knows what he could have done. Um, you know, I've been really thinking about starting a little punk-ass bitch list. And I put some thought into this. The first people that are going on this are going to be serial killers. Because they literally, like, ambush people. They like to prey on women. And they kid you when you're asleep. And that's just like a punk move. Domestic abuse people, the perpetrators of that shit, they're punk-ass bitches, too. Because, not always, but usually, it's a man beating on a woman. And I can guarantee you, most of those men don't want to even stand up to a man. Uh, the next type of person on my punk-ass bitch list, dirty cops. And I think a couple of those are going to rear their ugly heads in Carissa's story. And then, the next person on my punk-ass bitch list is men that drug or purposely get women intoxicated for the sole purpose of taking advantage of them sexually. Now, if you guys have any uh, additions you want me to add to the punk-ass bitch list, let me know, because I'm sure there's some people that I forgot. Back to Carissa. So if her foster brother was trying to, you know, take advantage of her, give her drugs, I mean, she's 15, 16 years old, that's a punk-ass move, and that might actually lead into what happened to her. But I'll wait and tell you guys about that in a minute. So, I, I've heard some stories from the foster mother. She's saying a couple of things. The first thing she says is, that night when Carissa came over, she seemed very intoxicated, and the last time she saw her was when she decided to go to sleep, and it's like, I guess it's like a little futon. Um, it's not even like a room. I'm not even exactly how I should describe it. Kind of like a loft area, I guess. Just kind of out of the way. There's like a little mattress. And she said Carissa was passed out there the last time she saw her. Now, I don't know this woman, the foster mother. I've never met her. But if I saw a kid her age showing signs of being that out of their mind high... I don't think I just let them go to sleep and hope they could sleep it off. I would be checking on them because, you know, people get super high like that, then they go and lay down, go to sleep, and they never wake up because their systems have shut down. So the next story she tells is that she saw Carissa leaving in a white truck who belonged to a man named Corey Kaufman. And Corey Kaufman is the 26-year-old that Carissa had confessed her love to earlier that day. Um, Corey ends up getting murdered about three months after this, and three CHP officers, a defense attorney, and a couple of other guys are all charged in the case. Now, I think at some point some of the charges are dropped. I'm not exactly sure. It was like a huge case that happened in Turlock. Go ahead and go check it out if you want. Um, but that's just, you know, one of the weird curveballs you get thrown in this case. So, yeah. The foster mom is saying Carissa left with Corey Kaufman that night. And he's no longer around, so it's not like he can be talked to. The other strange thing is this white truck. Her foster brother, at the time, had a white truck. 
But everyone is saying, everyone at that house is saying that he never left that night, that his truck stayed there. Her biological brother states that he saw her leave in a white truck, but he doesn't know who was the owner of the white truck, who was driving it, or who was even in the truck. I've heard stories like that night when she was trying to leave, she just kind of like, she was kind of acting strangely. She was like super obsessed with some black lighter. She didn't like want to leave without it. She also had a bag full of just panties. So I'm not sure how those two things come into play. They're just details I've been told. So I wanted to throw that out there. I don't know, maybe you guys have some idea about what that stuff could mean. Because I've thought about it, and I just, I don't know. Photo shoot? Who knows? So with all these different stories of how she left, everybody kind of does say around the same time. It was around 2 o'clock in the morning. So apparently she had plans, and she was supposed to meet up with some of these people the next day. And that never happens. So... Her biological mom calls Turlock PD to file a missing persons report. Now, Turlock PD comes there and files the report, but for some reason, he doesn't listen to the biological mom and just decides to write that she's a runaway. And her mom is very adamant that she at no point ever said Carissa was a runaway and it there's just so many conflicting statements from Turlock PD regarding that because in one statement or at one sentence they'll be saying that she had a great relationship with her family but in the next sentence call her a runaway and I'm sorry that just does not make sense you don't run away if you have a great relationship with your family And you sure as hell don't run away for nine years with no contact with your family if you had a great relationship. So I'm guessing and assuming on this, but because it was so long ago, I'm thinking that they just had that shitty attitude that so many law enforcement people had back then that, you know, call her, run away, Maybe, you know, she's a she's a foster kid, so they just kind of look down on them. And I'm not saying this from any point of anger or hatred from the police. I grew up with the police. Like, I vacationed with cops and their families my whole life. My grandfather was the chief of police for the city I'm from. And my dad was a sheriff from the county I'm from. So I just got to sit around and hear them talk how they would be speaking, you know, when nobody's listening. And I know their attitudes were a lot different back then. Thankfully, as time's gone on, I think uh, their attitudes have kind of caught up and they're not so quick to write people off as runaways. Uh, But unfortunately, Carissa fell through the cracks with this and... I, I don't know if the, if the police ever explained to the family what to expect with the investigation. It does not sound like they did because they never even contacted Chris to get a statement from him. And 
it's like I was able to find Chris and get him to give me an interview about Carissa. And he was more than willing to help. I put him into touch with the detective, Detective Red of the Turlock PD, um, and he's now on her case. He inherited her case from God knows who. There's been so many different detectives on her case. Sorry about that. I had to hit my jewel. Let's talk about the jewel for a second. If any of you guys are smokers out there, dude, I so recommend going to the jewel. I get the menthol flavor, the 5%, and I think I've said this before, but the first week I kind of went like slowly just like got it out of my system. I totally wanted cigarettes, but I just, you know, I stuck to the jewel because you can like hit it, you get that good lung feeling, and then it stops the nicotine craving. So yeah, you guys check it out. Those cigarettes are not what's up. All bad. Anyways. Back to Carissa. I totally forget what I was saying. But anyway, um, I was able to speak to Detective Red, and he wasn't very forthcoming with any of the information, and as coincidence would have it, he actually worked the Corey Kaufman murder case. Um, so when I brought up the Corey Kaufman angle, he was actually kind of surprised. He had never heard that about any of the situation with her. Um, other than that, he didn't really give me much information. He was just very quick to point out that he inherited the case. So yeah, I tried to get him in touch with Chris. He made an appointment to, I guess, have a phone interview, but then he never called. So I don't know. I just get the impression that they feel like it's a cold case and basically unless somebody delivers a tip on a golden fucking platter, nothing's going to get done in it. Another thing I noticed is the Turlock Journal have on their website, they have her listed as a runaway. Um, and I, I contacted them, asking them why. Like, why do you guys have her listed as a runaway? Even the police had changed her classification. And what they told me was Turlock PD had told a reporter at the Turlock Journal that they had made contact with Carissa after she turned 18 and she stated she wanted no contact with her family. So I let them know that that's not the case. Turlock PD has her listed as missing and endangered missing, um, but they didn't do anything to change it. I'm, I'm not sure why. I've contacted them several times about this. Maybe they don't understand that that's hurtful to the family, and it could also hurt the investigation. People write runaways off, and they really shouldn't. They don't know the whole circumstance, and it could be like a Carissa circumstance where it's a mistake. So, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it with Turlock Journal. I've asked them. I've called them out on it. They, I guess, just want to leave it as it is. So, I don't know what the answer is with the Turlock PD. I co tried contacting Detective Red multiple times, guys. Multiple times. And I get they're busy. I get that they only have a few detectives for major crimes. But, Carissa deserves attention just as much as anybody else in those files that those detectives have on their desk. And... It's not like Turlock is teeming with missing people anyway. So, 
Another thing that I was told was that a family member had an ex-boyfriend that had threatened her, saying, if you ever break up with me, I'm going to take your and I'm going to leave. And allegedly, this man has connections to the Mexican cartels. So, that's super scary thought. If he just wanted to snatch her up one night and drive south at the border, they would be gone. It would be almost impossible to find them if he had cartel backing, you know, helping him hide her and everything. So, that's just one of the many stories, uh, the, the possibilities that could have happened to Carissa. So, as I was closing out Carissa's story, I was told one more possible ending to that night with Carissa. She had been hanging out with these three brothers. Their last name is Sousa, and they're from Oakdale, which is this little rural community um, way out, I'd say, jeez, I don't even know how to describe where it is. It's so far away. Um, basically, it's east. It's almost like when you get to the foothills going up to Yosemite, like whatever mountain range that is. I have no idea what it is. Don't even ask me. But it's super small. Like, most of the people that live there, like the property owners anyway, they have acres upon acres. Um, I have a family ranch out there. And it's just like, if you wanted to get rid of a body, it would be super easy. They just, you know, you are secluded. And your nearest neighbor could be a couple miles away. And even if they're closer than a couple of miles, there's like hills, valleys, creeks, trees. It's just like almost as bad as a forest. So that's where these guys are from. And apparently one of them owned a white truck at this time. Someone said that it could have been one of the brothers that she left with that night. Uh, and the the thing about these guys, a couple years later... Um, they get arrested for basically like a multi-jurisdictional crime spree. Kidnapping charges, it's just, they went crazy buck wild. So, it's like if they're going this crazy and getting 11 charges of kidnapping, what's to stop them from hurting Carissa that night they, you know, she went out with them? So, I think they're all still in prison right now. So I would love to find out what prison and go pay them a visit. Um, but all of that costs money and yeah, not, not happening right now. <laughs> um, speaking of money, uh, Vanished in the Valley finally got its little Patreon up. I had it before, but it was all messed up. So now it's actually up and it's actually able to be used. So the way I have it set up right now, it says if you do like a $5 donation, you get a, you know, a little shout out. And if you have someone that I can profile, you guys would get preferences over other people. Um, and it doesn't even have to be $5. Honestly, any amount helps at this point because every month I'm having to basically give up one of my days off and work just to cover the costs of the hosting of it and the website, all of that stuff costs money. And on my days off, what I usually do is spend that researching the cases. I'm spending a good 10 to 14 hours each week on each person just on the research part. 
and then I have to edit this stuff together and record all that fun stuff. So if you guys like what we're doing and want to support us, we would greatly appreciate it. Um, we'll get some more tiers for the Patreon as time goes by, but like I said, anything helps at this point. It would be awesome if I didn't have to keep giving up my day off to pay for all the extra stuff that goes into a podcast. I hope you guys got, you know, a better idea of Carissa and everything. And this is the point I'm going to ask any family members or anyone really close to her to mute it or just turn it off because I'm going to get into what I think happened to her. So she was described as being super intoxicated that night. I honestly think she was given heroin because it was said that people at that house were doing heroin that night. I don't know which people, and it's all alleged, of course. But, you know, if she's just like some little 15, 16-year-old girl and she's not used to an opiate, heroin is a pretty fucking strong opiate to get introduced to. And I can see how she could easily overdose and nobody would know until they found her body the next morning. So I think what happened is she never left that house. She went, she laid down on that bed in the loft, went to sleep, and never woke up. I think then somebody found her, realized she was dead, and panicked. I unfortunately think they took her body and they dumped it. Whether that be in a dumpster somewhere or, you know, they went out of town and buried her. Because Turlock, it's not rural, but it is suburban. And, you know, you drive like 15, 20 minutes basically in any direction and you got orchards all over. So just like open land. So it wouldn't be too difficult on the whole scheme of things. But, yeah, I unfortunately think she died that night and... I think another thing that points to that is she would have made contact. She would have called Chris. She would have called her mom or her sister. You know, it's she wouldn't have stayed out of contact this long. And I just think those people at that house made, did a little punk move and panicked. And maybe it was because one of them gave her drugs or maybe it was because she was a minor and they just freaked out. But... I just, I don't think she ever left that house. And the Turlock PD never really checked out the house that she was last seen in. And as far as questioning the people she was with last, it's a joke. None of that got done. So the ball was super dropped. And, I mean, why would it would it be so hard for Turlock PD to now go try to make contact with these people and get a statement? Because these people know more than what they have told everybody. I kind of call them the ghost of Turlock because I tried getting a hold of them and was totally unable to. Now, during the recording of her episodes, her father unfortunately passed away. And, you know, he, he never got to find out what happened. So... I don't know if you guys believe in the afterlife, but if that shit's true, I hope he's found his daughter and they're together. So that's about all I got for Carissa Shell. If you guys know anything about this case, you can contact me at vanishedinthevalley at gmail.com or you can go check out our Instagram or Facebook. 
we have a website up. It's vanishedinthevalley.com. And like I was saying earlier, we've got the Patreon account set up. Um, I'm thinking about getting some merchandise coming up. And I just, like, have this dream of getting pepper spray with this, like, Vanished in the Valley logo on it. I even went so far as to check the legalities of shipping fucking pepper spray to the other states. And check this out. California is some stupid ass law like you can't uh, you can't ship pepper spray but you can ship bear spray so I don't know as California fools we might be getting <laughs> bear spray in the mail with a vanished in the valley sticker uh, so that's about it for this part get ready because now you're about to hear the story of Garrett Rodriguez and his unfortunate journey into the Emerald Triangle Alright, thanks for listening, guys. Ciao-ciao. It's time to get into the Emerald Triangle Chronicles. So this one, the guy isn't exactly missing anymore. He was missing for a while. And I just kind of wanted to highlight this case because it was already kind of like brought into the the media and everything. Um, But the problem is, like most of our cases... The person that everyone thinks is responsible has never been brought to justice. The man that was missing, Garrett Rodriguez, he was brought home to his family and he has had a proper burial. Thank God we have a proper burial. I was about to lose my shit. Okay, so let me tell you about this whole shit show. So Garrett Rodriguez was 29 when he traveled to Humboldt County, California, and that was December of 2012 and he was going to work on a medical marijuana grow. So I don't think he was just working on the grow. I think he had a stake in it. Um, I'm pretty sure he had put a little bit of money into this whole situation, and he kind of had a partner in the whole deal. So he moves to an area called Alder Point, and it's right next to this little town called Garberville. And let me just tell you about Garberville. For a second. Garboville is so amazingly beautiful. I camped there at Richardson's Grove, and that's part of like the old growth area for the Redwoods. And it's just it's like this Pacific rainforest where you like start to walk in the forest and there's these ferns and it just smells amazing, like nature should smell. And the town itself is tiny. It's super hippie and the whole area is just like peaceful, calm, kind of like a laid back lifestyle. So he moves to an area called Alder Point. Since around the 1980s, the area has had the nickname Murder Mountain. This area has links to serial killing and loving couple James Clifford Carson and Susan Barnes Carson, aka the San Francisco Witch Killers. Located in Humboldt County, the tiny settlement has a population of only 186 people, and it hugs the Eel River. So, I just want to point out, there's the the Eel River, the cursed Eel River again. Can we just, like, stay the fuck away from all points on Eel River? I can't stress this enough. I'm pretty much calling that I'm sure this area is cursed. I don't know when it became cursed. But, just avoid it. 
We've had the guy that, like, the serial killer that was dumping body parts there, like Sheila Frank and Danielle Bertolini. And then on Khadijah's story, we had the Native American tribe that was massacred. So, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I have no uh, idea on either. So, just stay away from the Eel River. There's thought to be about 15,000 illegal grows in the Emerald Triangle, and it's the area's dominant underground industry, producing at least 60% of the black market marijuana in the United States. So I'm sure if you go out there and dig, you're just as likely to find a dead body as you are wads of buried cash. I'm not, not even joking. They literally bury wads, like $40,000, $50,000 in coffee cans. Yeah, I don't know. We need to get like a metal detector out there or something. On April 25th, 2013, his dad reported him missing. This was six months after no word from him. So yeah, six months, you guys. Apparently, there was really bad cell reception in the area. And there, actually, there still is. Like, when you're out in Richardson's Grove, it's spotty at best. Like, and I'm sure on quote-unquote Murder Mountain, Alder Point, it's even worse. I guess it was normal for his uh, dad not to speak to him. Apparently, due to the bad reception, his friends and family had gotten used to chunks of time going by with no word from Garrett. But this time was a little bit different. His friends had started talking, and they all kind of noticed it had been way too long since anyone had heard from him. Not one friend had talked to him since January. So, yeah, this is like almost five months later, April 25th. Um... So they get this information together, they realize no one's talked to him in days, and they go to his dad. And his dad ends up calling the sheriff's department up there, like, right away. Uh, the sheriff's department, they take the report from him, and uh, basically they put out a little release, like, with his information. Kind of a description of what he looks like, and, like, his truck, the make and model, that kind of stuff. So about a month after the missing person flyer goes out, um, the sheriffs were made aware of his truck. The person whose property the truck was found on was, was reported to be super cooperative with the sheriff, and they gave up the info of the person who had left the truck there. Basically, washed their hands of the whole situation. The sheriff said there wasn't much to go on in the truck. It was in working order, and it was relatively clean. It wasn't wiped down like that style of clean, like detailed or anything there was property left in the truck um it was like inside as well as in the bed of the truck the sheriff's office tried to make contact with the person who had left the truck abandoned in the first place but found it difficult as that person was out of the area after finding the truck garrett's case seemed to stand still a bit rumors started going around town though and locals were pretty sure they knew exactly what and who had happened to garrett a group of eight people would eventually gather up and decide to dash out some California mountain justice to the man they thought was responsible for Garrett's vanishing. So let me just set up California mountain vigilante justice for you so you guys can get a better picture of how all of this madness went down. So the area we're talking about has historically been very poor and way below the poverty line. So, due to the lack of funds, the sheriff's department didn't have a whole lot of extra money to be making ends meet. Just driving from the sheriff's office to Elder Point was a problem due to the amount of time it took just to physically get there and the amount of money they'd have to spend for gas for each trip. 
and there was the fact the residents didn't exactly welcome them with open arms. The sheriff's department and the residents of Alder Point had long distrusted each other. All of these circumstances combined led the area to be known as an outlaw no-go zone for anyone that wasn't a local. Basically, if you didn't live there, you didn't go there. Residents rarely, if ever, called the cops to settle disputes with neighbors. That's kind of what leads those eight residents that would, would be later known as the Elder Point Eight to get together and do something about Garrett. Now, one thing that did seem a little out of the norm was locals teaming up against another local over someone they would have seen as an outsider. So what I'm thinking is this guy had just been stirring up his shit in the area for a while and Garrett's disappearance was just that little old bud <laughs> that broke the camel's back. So according to the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department, on Thursday, November 28, 2013, what just so happened to be Thanksgiving Day, the Elder Point Eight got together and went to the person's house they believed was responsible for Garrett's disappearance. They tied up two people that just happened to be visiting from out of town. Like, Jesus, you're at your friend's house visiting, and suddenly these, like, eight hill folk come busting through the door and tie your ass up. Do you know how fucking scared I would be? I'd be like, oh my god, I'm about to get murdered in the forest, and no one's gonna know. So I can just imagine these poor outsiders, like, shitting their pants basically so yeah they get tied up and the person that owns the property uh they shoot him a couple times just to get their point across that they're super fucking serious so they shoot him twice they blindfold him and they throw his ass in a car and at this point the property owner probably has a pretty good idea that this is serious shit now so once the threat level was established in the property owner's mind, they take a ride out to Jewett Ranch Road in the Harris area of Humboldt County. Once they get to the spot, the guy in the blindfold is forced to dig up the body and show the other, you know, the eight people that this really is his gravesite. Basically prove it, which he does. So... This area was located about 10 miles from the property Garrett had been living and cultivating marijuana on. The Alder Point 8, they let this guy live. They actually drove him to a hospital. Uh, at some point, I know the hospital calls the sheriff's department and lets them know they have a victim in there of a gunshot wound. Actually, two gunshot wounds. Around 3 o'clock in the morning, Humboldt Sheriff's Office gets a call from two men claiming they had been tied up and the homeowner had been shot and kidnapped. Half an hour after that, they receive a phone call from Garberville Hospital saying a gunshot victim had been admitted. The Humboldt County Sheriff's Office went to the home of the property owner and found evidence of the confrontation between the group of vigilantes and the owner of the property. So the day after that, which would have been November 30th, investigators received specific information with regards to the location of Garrett's body. The size of the property was so rural and so large that it was difficult to search the area without specific directions and instructions on exactly where Garrett's body was. 
On Sunday, December 1st, around 7 a.m., the investigators went to the site again and found a body. Due to the fact that the citizens of Alder Point area were distrustful of law enforcement, the property owner never dimed out the vigilantes that paid him a visit that night, nor was the property owner ever charged for the murder of Garrett Rodriguez. Isn't that kind of crazy? Another strange part of this case, um, two of the Alder Point eight would later be murdered by 30-year-old Matthew Aaron Brown. Word is that Brown was accused of stealing some property and the group had gotten together to confront Brown. That confrontation ended with the murder of Neil Eugene Decker, age 49, from Elder Point, and Scott Johnson, also of Elder Point, and he was 57. Brown, for some reason, was only charged and prosecuted for Decker's murder. So I'm not sure why. The, the workings of the district attorneys always seem to mystify me. So, what the story of this vanishing and the murders over there tell me is don't go to that cursed-ass Eel River and, and be aware in Humboldt County and don't forget your pepper spray. Thank you. Ciao-ciao. Are you lost? Come on.